Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 28. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and said, and kneeling down, asked a favour of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As a kid, I uh, grew up in a family that measured greatness by the speed that a tennis ball could get served during a Grand Slam tournament. Uh, Moments like Pat Cash's win over Ivan Lendl, in 1987, uh, as he became the Wimbledon champion, a moment when an Australian dominated the game, or at least dominated that particular game, those were great moments uh, etched in my family's history. And more recently, uh, Leighton Hewitt, someone who has soared to uh, rather great heights as one of Australia's greats uh, in tennis. Hewitt's been famous not only for his return of serve, but also for that uh, great psych-yourself-up expression. Come on! And the fist pump goes with it. You beauty. Now, greatness uh, is one of those interesting qualities, isn't it? It's interesting how we measure it. And what is it that makes a great player? Is it just winning lots of matches? One way or another. Because I know that Leighton Hewitt, during one match... Uh, I saw he was, he was so keen to win, but at the time he was, he was copying a bit of a flogging and I could see he was getting rattled. In one particular moment, he started to uh, take it out in the linesman and he was intimidating him and he didn't let up either. And so after a while, uh, he actually got disciplined for it and I think he lost some points. One of the commentators, I think it was a former player, started to say, well, it's, it's not very sportsmanlike behaviour, but Bruce McAvaney uh, deciding that, you know, Leighton's an Aussie, so, you know, we're going to defend these guys. He, uh, he piped up at the right moment saying, well, but it's what's made him great. And that almost was Bruce's way of saying, well, we can, we can overlook this kind of thing because this fiery kind of character is, what, what's, is what's made Leighton Hewitt so great. But I wondered about that, thinking about greatness and thinking, is winning the game the most important thing? Winning it by fair means or by foul? Is that what greatness is all about? Or does character come into it as well? 
do we think of people as great players, not just because they won, but for what kind of characters they are? Well, the topic of greatness is, a, is something that comes up in today's passage as well. On the journey to Jerusalem, the disciples have already been uh, told by Jesus that they will have a type of greatness. They'll be seated on 12 thrones and they'll judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And so as they come to Jerusalem, they're getting all a bit excited, it seems, about the new portfolios of greatness that they'll have. But as it turns out, Jesus has to give them once again the very sad news. And you see that picked up in verses 17 through to 19. He's already spoken about how there's going to be a renewal of all things, but that's going to involve the way of the cross. In verse 17, Jesus says, or Matthew says, Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. Well, it's this kind of news that's already uh, cropped up for the disciples back in chapter 16 when Peter realises that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus explains to him what that means. Again, in verse, uh, chapter 17, the disciples are getting used to the idea from Jesus that there is suffering on the way. But by judging from their reaction that comes next, it seems that they're reading from a different script to Jesus. The one that Jesus has got in mind is not the one that they've got in mind. We can feel for them, though, as they grapple with what Jesus means by this kind of language. They're convinced that Jesus is going to be a king. They expect him to take over the country. And they've left everything to follow him. And so their idea of triumph is, is cast in, in somewhat worldly terms of, of kind of past kings of Israel. And so when they come to his language about the suffering that's going to go on, they might be thinking, oh, this is perhaps a, a dramatic, an overly dramatic way of talking about how we'll go through some tough times and then rise to, to great victory. People talk about that in the political world at times when they speak of a political Lazarus, someone's doing a, a rising from the dead, politically speaking. For example, back in uh, 2001, poor old Kim Beasley was lagging behind the coalition. Actually, no, he was in front at that time, <laughs> before the election. He was going 60 points as the preferred Prime Minister, while John Howe was dropping around 40 percentage points. And then things changed as uh, September 11 and the Tampa crises. And then John Howard did a, a political Lazarus. He became the, the comeback king at that time. Now, whatever else the disciples thought about what Jesus was teaching, they didn't quite join the dots to take him seriously. And it still seemed like a mystery to them. The earthly way they thought was um, that God's kingdom was going to come with a different kind of strength, a different kind of victory. And that's at this point they're, they're seeking to get some top spots in this new kind of earthly victory. That's when a mother comes in to bat for her two boys. And we'll see that in verses 20 to 24. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favour of him. What is it you want? He asked. Grant 
that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, why is it that the mother of two grown men has come down to ask Jesus for this favour? In the Old Testament, we know that uh, when King David was on his deathbed, uh, Bathsheba came in and asked that Solomon, her son, uh, might take the kingship. And this is a situation too where perhaps this mother's recognising to Jesus that she understands he's the king and she knows that this is the right time to act. Maybe it's just a bit of damage control that uh, they figure if the answer is no, it'd be better for mum to get the answer no than, than for them. But Jesus talks to them straight. He talks to them all. He talks to the boys as well, the men, and says they don't really understand the situation and the link that's between suffering and the coming glory. Pick that up in verse 22. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. Now the cup that is spoken about here has got Old Testament precedence. Uh, most of us will be familiar with Psalm 23 where the cup is overflowing and it, it's actually a blessing. But there are other sections in the Old Testament where the cup's a metaphor for suffering or experiencing the wrath of God, his judgment. Israel uh, in Isaiah 51 is described as the country that drank the cup of God's wrath when they're judged for their rebellion. And they expected that the people who rebelled against God would also face God's wrath. But in this passage before us, Jesus tells James and John that they will drink from his cup. And later on, we certainly know that they do drink from the, the cup of the new covenant uh, when Jesus uh, hands out the Last Supper. But it seems more to the point that he's speaking about how they'll suffer for being his disciples. <coughs> Jesus is going to talk more about the cup a little later when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane and asks that the cup will be taken from him. But he'll actually, if there's some other way that he could in, avoid the experience of God's wrath, then uh, he's asking if that would be taken. But at this point, the cup seems to be bound up with the suffering that James and John will experience. We know that John... Uh, ended up in being a prisoner on the island of Patmos. We're not entirely sure about the end game of his history. but We do find out what happened to James in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says, King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, I don't think James and John had that kind of plan or that future in mind when they asked about the places of honour in Jesus' kingdom. And as to those places, what we do know is um, when Jesus was crucified and he did have the title King of the Jews and they had their little seat that's parked on the cross as well, he did have two people, one on his right and one on his left, but they were being crucified. 
What about the other disciples? What did they think about all this? Well, they're, they're annoyed about this conversation that James and John have with Jesus. We see that in verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two, the two brothers. But why was it that these uh, other disciples were cranky? Why were they so annoyed about this conversation? Is it because they were so pure-minded that they didn't have anything in mind like this for themselves? They thought that James and John were just being so worldly. Or is it that they think that maybe James and John were elbowing them out the way and kind of queue-jumping and you know, jumping the gun to, to get the top spots ahead of them? Well, either way, Jesus, uh, the wise teacher that he is, sees that this is a moment for them to grow. This is an opportunity uh, for them to actually move forward in their knowledge of the values of God's kingdom and how it's different from the way that the world thinks about greatness. And so he uses a couple of examples of opposites to explain about true greatness. We're at point three in the outline if you're tracking that. And I'll read uh, from verse 25 through to 27. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. In the Roman times, many people had to tolerate brutal overlords. They were bound as clients to a particular patron where the patron in the relationship had the upper, upper hand by a long shot. A client was expected to show his patron honour and was to support him in any political actions, uh, any actions that the patron took, the client, had to get behind, um, the client had to get behind his patron. And the patron, for his part, owed his client legal protection and there were times when he would also offer financial assistance. And so what we see uh, from the Roman times was a period when uh, se Roman senators ruled, but after a while generals uh, gained strength. Generals like Julius Caesar, Pompey and Sulla became the patrons of their soldiers first in the first place and then they became the patrons of the nations that they conquered. Entire nations became under their control. And so the Roman uh, world really moved from something that was a republic uh, to becoming something of an empire ruled by emperors. These are the people, this is a situation that Jesus is referring to when he's speaking about uh, those who lorded over them. And he says to his disciples, in effect, so you want to know about being great, do you? Well, first of all, I want you to think about how the patrons lord it over the people. You got it? Right. Know that. That's what he's saying. That's how not to, the negative modelling. That is the opposite to the greatness that Jesus is speaking about. Earlier in this talk, I talked to you about Leighton Hewitt and his bad behaviour, intimidating poor linesman. In that example, that was a, a situation where he wasn't looking about after justice. He wasn't thinking about the interests of the, the poor linesman doing the right thing. He was thinking about serving himself. 
And it's that kind of spirit that Jesus is saying, that's, that's not the spirit of greatness. That's actually lording it over someone. That's not the way to be great in God's kingdom. Now, it's all very well, I suppose, to pick on poor old Leighton Hewitt, you know, getting a bit hot under the collar with all that adrenaline rushing and getting pumped up with his come-ons and all the rest of it. But it's probably a bit more important for us to think about uh, things closer to home, isn't it? The business end of the deal isn't us on a tennis court. It's us in our families, in our workplaces, in the communities that we belong to. And to ask ourselves the question, are we being people who are servant-hearted or are we self-indulgent? Are we the ones who follow after the greatness that Jesus shows us or are we behaving a lot more like those who lord it over? It's hard being a servant though, isn't it? And we can get tired being a servant. I think of that every time when uh, my kids scream and wake, wake up early before 6 o'clock in the morning and my wife kicks me to get out of bed and go and serve them. I think, hmm, it's cold out there. <laughs> But being a servant is also a very satisfying experience too, isn't it? It's not all bad news. Did you know that a shark, here's something interesting, did you know a shark, if it stops swimming, it drowns? It's true. Well, how's he going to wiggle this one into the talk? Well, let me just say, for a shark to survive, it has to keep on swimming. That's the way it flourishes. It's been designed that way. And it seems to me that God has designed us to be people who flourish and thrive most when we serve. That's actually the best way to live. God calls us to be servants. He calls us to serve him and he calls us to be serving each other. And as we do, as we step out and stop being self-centred and we serve other people, that is the best way to live. There is greatness in serving. And that's exactly what Jesus shows us. He models it. He embodies greatness in his self-sacrifice for us. And we see that in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, a ransom is a payment demanded in order to set someone free. That's what it is. But from the other point of view, it can also be a payment that is made to set someone free. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom or as a payment for many. This is also clear from Matthew chapter 26 in verse 26 where Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. A ransom situation is very serious. It's life-threatening. I grew up um, next, living next door to the holiday house of Kerry Whelan, who was uh, in the news over time. You might have known that name. Apparently a man called Bruce Burrell has been implicated in her abduction and there was a ransom uh, price put on her head and that was a very se- serious situation. I don't think um, Kerry's been found. We used to go to her place for afternoon teas and have a nice time and I wouldn't have expected to grow up knowing somebody who's been abducted and held for ransom. In more recent times we see uh, things on the news about pirates in around Somalia and captains of US ships getting abducted and ransom prices being held out for them and a whole lot of anxious people worried about whether they're going to make it to safety or not and find some freedom. I imagine the captain of the ship was pretty concerned about his freedom as well. 
But in our story that we're looking at today, we are the ones who are in trouble. We're the ones who need to be rescued. And the reason is because our consciences accuse us before God. We know in our heart of hearts that we are not good enough for God, that nobody is. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we don't always give thanks to God and honour him, love him and live his way. And because God is a holy God, and to be true to himself, he cannot just say, oh, just let boys be boys and wash it away and overlook it. No, God cannot tolerate sin, and so in his wisdom and his kindness, he provides a way, a costly way, for us to get right with him. And that's what this passage is about today. The wonderful news is that God comes into the world in the person of our Lord Jesus. That Jesus willingly lays down his life and he drinks the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. He takes the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against God so that we can go free. Jesus comes as the one who doesn't come to be served. He comes as the one to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. And we can enjoy the forgiveness of sins as we put our trust in him and his sacrifice in our place. As we live as Jesus' people, those who are forgiven, we recall, we recall that he challenges us to change. And in application from this passage today, we're reminded that we've got to change in the way that we think about greatness. We need to move away from this worldly model of lording it over people and think about those who have the servant heart as the models of true greatness. Jesus shows us in his actions what it means to be great in God's kingdom as he comes as the one who is the servant of all. And he challenges us to take on that kind of character. And so our job is to wrestle with the areas of our lives where We've got to get off being uh, the lording it over ones and we've got to think through what it means to be servant-hearted people. We need to think about ways we can serve God and we need to think about ways that we can serve each other with our time, with our prayers, doing good to all people and especially to those of the household of Christ. Certainly with respect to those outside of our church family, uh, it's important that we serve the world by bearing the truth that we've been given and not changing it but to share it in a clear way in a respectful way and a truthful way to remind the world that there is hope there is salvation there is forgiveness and that it's found in the sacrifice of jesus who died and rose again for our sins and so may god help us to follow jesus as he leads us as someone who's a servant-hearted leader and let's work um, at putting away sin and let's think through how we can be servant-hearted people ourselves. And may God help us to do that. Let's pray and ask God to help. Father, we thank you for this passage which reminds us again about true greatness. We thank you that Jesus modelled it. We thank you that he uh, gave us the model of, of service where he laid down his life. Father, we thank you that it wasn't just an example, but that in actual fact he, he drank the cup of your wrath 
He experienced your righteous anger at our sin, our rebellion, that we might enjoy forgiveness. Father, thank you that we can put our trust in him and what he's done and enjoy a new relationship with you where we stand as your adopted children and we can speak to you in prayer about all kinds of things, where we can have the assurance that our, our guilt is forgiven. Father, we pray that you would help us now to press on and follow Jesus in his example. Help us to think carefully about how we can serve you and how we can serve each other. Father, we thank you for this day and we pray that you would strengthen us as your people to grow to maturity in Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.